What's up? What's up? What's up? Podcast flock. A flock of dummies like you guys still listening to a pastor that keeps saying I don't have the answers. And I love y'all. I love y'all. We have just, I just love, that's one of my favorite parts of doing, maybe my favorite part of doing a podcast is just the things behind the scenes, the conversations, the community, the patrons. It's just, it's just wonderful. It's just wonderful. So let me, let me read you some things. I love when you guys write me. I love it. So a new patron, I'm not going to say his name because I didn't ask anybody for the daggone permission to read their stuff. He says, a joy to be able to support you in the podcast, Joey, after leaving the church and attempting to embrace agnosticism for a time I wasn't sure I'd ever come back, but your PWNA has been so helpful in carving a new and honest path back to Jesus. The conversations you are having are so critically important and I look forward to helping out in whatever small way I'm able. Holy, oh my gosh. I that's just that just is that means a lot means a lot this is from a long time listener after another busy and anxious period i'm catching back on the pod and damn it's good stuff joey and honestly ellen dunking on you is becoming my favorite part of the show (laughs) we all love some ellen for sure i'll read you one more that came through on twitter is this bragging Yeah, I guess maybe it is. This one's a a little more on the serious note based on the couple of podcasts back where we continue sharing our story about mental health crisis. says, hey, man, thanks for sharing your story on your podcast. I lead worship out here in San. I won't say the next part and also struggle with ugly thoughts. It's super encouraging to hear your story. And I just wanted to thank you for giving people and leaders in the church hope. Well, that's one of the reasons why I do it, my friend, and thank you for writing that. But yeah, let me give a shout out to our three newest patrons, and that's John Alexander, Logan Robinson, and Seth Blado, Blado, Bladow. I gave you three versions. Hopefully, I nailed it on one of them. Our patrons, we partner up with DonorSeed.com, bought this woman who tries to feed her family over a fire. The smoke is bad for people in developing countries to cook over a fire, so we bought her a stove. Yes, Yes, you heard right. In a developing country, there is a woman now who has a stove to cook on, a lot safer, and it's because of our patrons. Our patrons also have a different podcast feed called PWNA Raptured. And why I call it that is because I have a lot of content that hasn't been released. And now when I record stuff that will be released months later, the unedited version of it is just like it'll be raptured into the air and it will end up on your podcast feed. And I love giving that to you guys. So here's the deal. I hardly ever do this. Hardly ever do it. I'm going to ask you some things. First of all, 
if you are on the fence about being a patron, I'm just going to tell you to go ahead and get in now because you'll grandfather yourself in at a lower level. For example, right now our two lowest levels are 5 and $10, and it's soon going to be 8 and 15 uh, obviously because I'm going to be offering way more for patrons, way more opportunities and some cool stuff. So again, if you're on the fence, if you're not on the fence, ignore me right now. But before we move on to the the main guy of this episode, I want to read you two reviews that I just think is kind of neat. You know, what I have gone through with a bad Christian podcast, not being on that anymore, and, and been doing this thing for a long time. It's just neat to hear two completely opposing perspectives on me and my past and what I'm doing right now. Take a listen. I think the one thing that you can always count on with this podcast is that Joey will be honest. He has entertaining guests on. I've been following PWNA and BC Pods since day one, and it seems like a split was an inevitability. Joey was always the voice of reason, and pretty much the only reason I listened to BC Pod for as long as I did. Joey brings what he brought to the table over there to his own podcasts here with a more grounded feel in a somewhat autobiographical yet very interesting podcast. <sighs> Joey, I get it. I've struggled with depression for years and I'm sorry. You were spiraling and needed help. The dichotomy between being on BC and a minister was too much and it would have been for anyone. Something had to give. So, you went back and found comfort in a place that has fond memories. No one blames you. Hope you come back to being friends with the BC bros. Your true voice is missed. That was Jed Payne, by the way, a friend of mine who does a podcast called Church and Other Drugs. You should go check that MF out. So, a little bit about Pete Inns. So I remember when Pete Inns was just a name for me. It was just a name. I heard about Pete Inns. I was I was getting to a place, honestly, personally, where I was feeling uneasy about my beliefs, and this name started floating around. But it was pretty lofty words, like tons of people rethinking things, having a hard time with the Bible, and they love this guy. He's really helping a ton of people. Super awesome author. And I was like, man, I gotta I gotta check this out. It was almost like that was the go to. Hey, if you're if you got questions questions about the Bible, read Pete Inns. <laughs> so I eventually did, and I'm glad that I did. So as one of the guys in Bad Christians, at the time we had him on our show, later had him at our conference, and he is just, he's just the real deal. I, I know I'm all mushy. That's just who I am. I love Pete Inns. I love him, and glad to have him on here, I think for the second time, and I'll post the first one in the show notes. So I'll tell you this too. Weirdly enough, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, and... Now, I am listening to the hell out of the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast by Christianity Today. It's riveting. I can't get enough. I'm upset when the episodes are over. It's very sad, but so interesting, especially because I was like a Driscollite at some point in my life for a few years. But I'd say the podcast that I listened to the most before the rise and fall of Mars Hill came out is 
it, it's kind of my go-to. It's the Bible for Normal People with Pete Enns and his co-host, Jared Bias. Marvelous stuff. They have quite a community over there, so check that out. Now, I will say that I often think this thought, what would Pete think about this? So here's what happens. When I finally get to sit down and talk to him, I try to fit in all of my what would Pete think about this questions. I always I, I, I want his take on this stuff. And I, I think I did it. I think I fit it all in. Almost. <laughs> Love y'all. Enjoy Pete ends. So love Bible for normal people. I don't listen to a whole lot of podcasts, but usually when I do, it's that one or a few others. And there was one episode. You, you've got to you've got to be a Chris Farley fan, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the Chris Farley show. That's how I feel like right now. I like I'm the most irresponsible podcast. I'm like, you remember Pete? Remember that episode with Jared when? <laughs> that, that was great. I, exactly. I don't know the episode number, but you guys talked a lot about how. You've got these champion, these these pastoral champions in churches that are sent off to seminary, and then they come back like, "What in the world is going?" I think that I think the topic had something to yeah. do with how the Bible is read and how we're reading it wrong and all that stuff. And I just yeah. I wanted to say how much I appreciate your admission of that sometimes being unintentionally because I coming from like a very evangelical evangelical background, Pentecostal and, and all of that. I, I I don't have to go any further than me right here that when I when I hear people talk about hell being a scare tactic and a way of keeping control over people, I know for me, hell really bothered me. And that's the last like I wanted it not to be true. Mm-hmm. So like I, right. I don't know. I in this whole the the whole polarization of politics and now it's in the church also it does kind of rub me the wrong way when i hear some of my fellow progressive thinkers just say yeah all those churches are trying to control people with hell Mm -hmm. and i think a lot of us we don't want it to be true we i mean we just Mm -hmm. don't want it to be true so yeah you're a healthier voice in there man i appreciate it good i'm glad yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I was talking to somebody about this Saturday night. Actually, I had, uh, had a had a little bonfire, and I was like, you know, <laughs> if if this is how God operates, that there's tons and tons of people all around the world. First of all, many of them who don't even have any sort of Christian framework whatsoever. But in in addition yeah. to that, you've got people that are being introduced to the gospel but it just doesn't make sense or man, I would love for there to be a God or I'd love for there to be truth. I just can't, I can't get it straight in my mind. And God is like, yeah, not only did you not get it right, but I also made it really hard and complicated for you. (laughs) And I also stayed relatively hidden. (laughs) Be gone. Mm -hmm. All of you. Like it's, it, it's very, like, I think for me, it is very relieving to get to a place where, that just cannot be true for a loving God. So this loving God that I've right. believed in my whole life, it can't be true. It just, that just well, doesn't way, make sense anymore. Yeah, and but the way that people um, can address those things that you're mentioning here, and basically it's Calvinism, right. you know, because God loves the elect. Right. 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 So, of course, you don't get it. 
you're yep. not part of the elect. Right. At least, at least right. from our point of view, you're not. Right. Of course, it raises other issues right. like, what's up with that? I right. mean, God elects some before the foundations of the world and how people sometimes talk about it. Right. And, and it just creates other kinds of problems. But it does solve that problem a little bit. Right. You know, right. because God's actually, he's freely revealing himself. Such a win-win for the Calvinist, man. <laughs> it, it is. It, until you start probing a little bit, what kind of a God is it who... You know, double predestination, not just the good side, but the bad side. You're right. predestined from before birth to burn for eternity. That's that's that creates its own sort of moral right. problems, you know, maybe even worse moral problems. Right. And I've even heard of Calvinists like talking about God as when people are burning forever and ever is to the glory of God. And I'm like, right. I can't. And it's like their theology, they figure out some sort of way of still saying that God is loving. And it makes it just, it's, I, right. I just don't even yeah. understand it. And I don't understand how people can actually, and, and this is kind of going into the original question that I was asking as far as what, what do people like really believe? I had a friend that I went to school with, and we're kind of in the similar space right now as far as thinking definitely way outside of the traditional systematic theology. But he recounts the time where he made peace with Calvinism in his heart because he felt like the Holy Spirit put that in his heart. And he remembers just sitting down in the shower and just sitting there for like an hour, like with his mm. mouth wide open sort of thing, mm. like just, oh my gosh, I guess mm. this is just true. But don't wouldn't you say that they really do believe that like and and is it oh, and is do. it yeah, is yeah. it because like i've even heard that hey this is a great theology for white straight males because they're used to having privilege and this falls into that privilege but when i was starting to entertain calvinism i didn't want it to be true i did mm -hmm. not want it to be true i mean do that they really believe it right <laughs> yeah they, they do and i think um but maybe the problem is they're not they, sad they, about it. They're happy about it. Maybe that's well, the problem. Well, I mean, they they sometimes say, you know, they're it's at least some mystery why these things happen. <laughs> but in the mind of God, it all is reconciled, and one day we'll know how it all fits together. Yeah. So, you know, when you say like it's unjust for God to predetermine people for eternal torment, right? You know, then the answer is well. You don't know that because you know the mind of God. You don't know how this can be reconciled, right. and that's a valid point. No, I don't know, but neither do you. Right? You know, right. it, it goes both ways. So, yeah. um, so do you put a lot of thought in? Like, so I look at you, and I definitely see you as someone who just knows the Bible a, a billion times more than I do. And as far as like what we've been given, and I'm very much so familiar with. I'd like to learn more, obviously, but very familiar with how you approach the Bible and all that. Is is the afterlife something that you feel we've been given enough guidance to have any framework at all? Or would you say, hey, we have no idea if it's universalism. We have no idea if it's a dirt nap. We have no idea if it's annihilation. We just we just don't know. Or when Pete thinks of post death, like what what goes on in your mind, and is it just theory, well, or is it just dreaming, or what? Yeah, I I don't think that we really do have a lot to go on from the Bible itself. I think, you know, Paul's eschatology is, I mean, Tom Wright talks about this too. It's yeah. it's, you know, it's not going to heaven when you die. It's what happens after that. You know, so. Um, in terms of like the eternal state, I just, you know, for Paul, his 
his desire is that ultimately it's bodily people will be around. And that's that's one particularly Jewish um, framework for understanding the end. Yeah. Resurrection is the way God shows faithfulness to God's people. Yeah. And you'll participate in the um, in the kingdom of God on earth. Right. Right. But there are other Jews who believed in uh, the immortality of the soul. Right. And just the New Testament's not down with that, but other Jews at the time were. And I think, you know, a lot of what the Bible says about, like, the next state, it's actually very little. And what it does talk about, I think, is is because Paul is very much thinking in terms of that particular way of thinking about the end. But I mean, a lot of people, Dale Allison wrote a New Testament scholar at uh, Princeton now, but he wrote a book, um, Dark Darkness Comes, I think it's the name of it. I, I'll remember the name later, but it's basically it's about death and afterlife and stuff like that. And he, and he made a point, which I had never th- really thought of before, but he said, you know, what are bodies for? They're for eating and for pooping and for procreating. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, um, do you really need that forever? Right. You know, and and so many other religious traditions have more of like of an incorporeal notion. So, um, you know, my my thinking is that I I do think there is a next stage. Yeah. I do think there is consciousness. I have absolutely no idea what it is, and I'm just not going to worry about it. Right. You know. Yeah. Because I'll find out, and if there's nothing, I won't find out, and it won't matter. Yeah, you won't but, care because I won't. I won't be. But uh, you know, I, I do um, I, I do think that there's something there, but it's not a reward for like faithfulness. I think it's just being consumed by the love of God that really propels the entire universe. Yeah. Yep. You know, I think more along those lines. You know, others, I mean, you know, I, I read people, but you know, Richard Rohr, for example, would be very much on board with that sort of thing. And and I'd be lying if I said he wasn't sort of influential in how I think about some of the stuff, yeah. but other people as well. And um, and I'm happy to leave that as an you just got yourself question. canceled from all evangelical Christians, by the way. But go ahead. Yeah. Well, it's okay. You know, I mean, <laughs> they don't sign my paycheck. It doesn't matter. Um, but uh, not to kid around, but not all, because there are many who yeah, do. You're right. Think things, and they right, and they can't they they can't articulate it, and that's the people who listen to our podcast. So, right. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, it's it's a question that I'm perfectly happy to leave completely open and not have to settle. And it comes down at the end of the day in whether you think there is God, a supreme being, and whether that God is ultimately benevolent and good, and whether we actually do think that God is love. At that point, it becomes a matter of trust. Right. And not having to know, right? Right. That's right. that's sort of where I've been for the past few years, and I'm and I'm comfortable. I really don't think about. I, mean, I think about death. I always have thought about it, but I don't. I think of it more like you know, when to get this over with. You, know, I want to find out whether I'm right or not. Right. You know, let's just, right. let's just move along. Yeah. But uh, you know, I've become interested in people, you know, scholars who experiment on things like near death experiences and things like that. 
And it's fascinating when you start reading about some of these accounts and how far back they go in history, like back to the Greek period, yeah, pre-Christian period. Yeah, it's like okay, something's going on around here, right? You know, just something's happening, right? So now, why would you, with with that sort of open-handedness that I can relate to, what keeps you locked in on the Bible being what you study and just teach, help people figure out would it be more hobby oriented, or you think there's really something to this thing? that is profound mm-hmm. enough to dedicate your whole life to it? Well, I think, see, I'm not sure if either of those are really the best, the way that I would put it. Have you decided not think... to ever come back on this podcast yet? No, not okay, yet. Cool. It's coming up. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the I think the Bible has provided like a grounding and structure for theological thinking, for Judaism and Christianity. Yeah. And it's sort of like a fertile ground for things to grow out of, right? And for me, that's that's a lot of the appeal of the Bible. It's because the Bible is so um, utterly hard to pin down to like a system of thought, right? But it's contradictory. It's it's got a lot of tensions in it, and um, it's it's sort of inviting us also to participate in that whole process of trying to articulate for ourselves what God is like. I'm I'm happy to not obsess, but to be very curious. That's yeah. sort of where I've been, you know. Yeah. For me, I think, and I've I've said this a few times, I can't I cannot conceptualize of how all this stuff got started without a God. So that's kind of a starting place for me. And I know there's smarter people that could push back on that. I just yeah, yeah the 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 options for me mm-hmm. is there was a the universe was in, I, eternal and there's some sort of God in the universe or some, you know, everything came from nothing, which I don't think that's scientifically possible. But then one being there's like a, an intelligent God who was here forever and ever. And that to me is the only thing that makes any sense at all. And then for me, I think the next step is it really seems as if this Jesus guy existed and that he resurrected. Um, mm-hmm. Now, do you, would you relate to, or would you have a kindred spirit with Paul when he says, if there was no resurrection, what are we even doing? Or is that something that isn't as important to you or? Yeah. I mean, I, I do have a, you know, a deep connection with what Paul says there. I think that's been so, um, you know, such a pillar of the Christian faith. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's not the issue. I think, like many people, and not just today, but I think throughout history, the thought of a resurrection is a one that people will rightly struggle with, and I think actually have to struggle with. So, you know, I do feel a connection there, but uh, it's also something that, you know, and, and as many people have done, you know, can you envision a Christianity without physical resurrection? Right. And I think people have. And they've explained it on sort of historical grounds, because again, for Paul, resurrection of the dead was so key to God showing faithfulness to God's people. Yeah. And Jesus's resurrection is the first one to um, uh, to, to kickstart that larger process. Right. You know. So, and that's that's what Paul truly believed. And you know, I think we have a pretty good record of what people believed. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, First Corinthians fifteen, the you know, appearing That's to five hundred, yep. 
It is a big one. See, it's not, I don't, I, I don't take that lightly, right. uh, but, but you know, um, I don't know necessarily what it means for Jesus to appear right? because Jesus appeared to Paul, according to the book of right. Acts, but not bodily right. in a vision and a bright light and a voice. Right. right? So, so I think, um, it really, but of course, that's in the context of defending resurrection, right? Yeah. That's that's sort of the point. But still, it's it's, you know, the Bible. Paul makes a huge deal out of the resurrection, and he, it's the basis for a lot of what he says. Yeah, and I think Paul's theology is all about working backwards from resurrection to dealing with a whole lot of other things. Right. And so I, I, you know, continue to take that very seriously, but also I understand when people say, I just can't believe that. Right. They're not, they don't hate God or Jesus. They're just trying to process and don't believe the, the history resurrection. of theology. Yeah. yeah. And the yeah. history of the theology is, is, you know, there are other people who have come to that same conclusion, yeah. um, but they're not being, you know, rebellious. Sure lugheads right. you know who are trying to upset the system they just don't see it yeah. you know and i think there should be room for people to discuss that and come to some conclusions and reasonable points of view yeah now do you think that jesus said from what from what we have do you think he said enough to where if there was not a resurrection then we don't take this guy serious um I, well i think there's much that Jesus said that you can take seriously without resurrection, yeah. you know, cause, cause I, I really do think one of the big differences between the gospels and Paul is Paul is all about post Easter and Jesus is leading up to it, giving hints to it. Right. Right. Like I'll be crucified and then rise. And you know, a lot of biblical scholars think that when those things appear in the gospels, they're, you know, the Gospels are written a generation and more after Jesus's lifetime. Yeah. So this is already established. These, these are the Gospels are later than any of Paul's letters. Right. So they're established at a time when people have been thinking about Jesus and Jesus's significance for quite some time. And so when they tell the Jesus story, they're already going to have in that story how it all winds up from the point of view of even decades later and what Christians believe. And so, you know, they're, they're bound to sort of tell the story of Jesus from a later vantage point. Yeah. But, um, you know, I do think it's an open question academically whether Jesus actually announced that during his preaching or whether he was more a um, someone calling his Jewish world into account yeah. for the reality of God that they've neglected and how he is the one to look to yeah. pretty much for that. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Now, would you, would you agree that the emphasis on women being the first discoverers is meaningful as far as the legitimacy? I mean, obviously it's not like a home mm -hmm. run, but is that would would you agree? Yeah, if that was made up, they're probably not going to pick women for that. Or were they even doubly yeah, smart? I they're mean, like, we'll pick women, and then they'll never think it's. <laughs> well, I mean, I think you know, you think Peter would have been the candidate to right. you know to run and see it, and he sort of does in John, but the other disposal beats him out, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> to, to the tomb. Sort of a rivalry between the school of John and the school of Peter. People say, but. 
Um, but yeah, I, I think there was something there was something to that, and I think the fact that women appear there first in all the Gospels. Again, it's one of these things that New Testament scholars would talk about. It's it has the air of you know verisimilitude, something that seems authentic because it's it might not be the way you write the script if you're making it up, right? Right. right. And uh, and we know that you know Mark and Luke are somewhat dependent on uh, Matthew and Luke are somewhat dependent on Mark. Mark's the first one, and John is off doing his own thing. But um, but even then, you know, Matthew and Luke change things, too, in, in, in how they adapt from Mark's material. So, you know, it just it, it is one of those things that really it makes you just stop and sort of say, hmm, yeah, this is interesting. And yeah. I wonder what bearing it has on history. Yeah. Yeah. So I did some I did seminary studies and I remember the first foundational thing that we were to take to the bank and that was anything that seems to be contradicting in the bible anything that doesn't seem to work there is an answer there is there is an answer we just have to find it do you think they really believe that yes i think people really did believe that even if they believe it because they've never had the liberty to ex- really to um interrogate that view yeah right because i think i do think and, and this isn't bad people but i do think that there are very smart people who will say there are no contradictions in scripture and i think that's largely being socialized in a particular theological or ecclesiastical context right and and their own temperament may not let them expose that, you know, for fear of losing a job and things like that. And again, that sounds like I'm I'm dissing them, and I'm not because right. I understand that it's like you're just not even conscious of the problems there because you, you just your survival instincts won't allow you to go there. And I think that the evangelical and fundamentalist world is really those people exist more than you might think. Right. You know, on the academic level, they exist more than you might think. Yeah. And I feel for them, you know, because they're they're sort of caught between two worlds. They understand the bigger picture of, uh, you know, there are arguments to be made there, and they're not ridiculous. And but they have to reject them wholesale someplace, yeah. you know. And that's that's a hard, hard way to be paid to be a thinking person. Right. I mean, I, I'll I'll be the first one to admit that I. You may have ruined me for the better, Pete. I think when I, I used to have this, well, maybe that's true. Maybe it's maybe in my human mind, I can't see how things work, but it does. And then reading books like uh, the Bible tells me so, and and obviously some other authors, mm-hmm. I was like, wait a second, it just doesn't work that way. It just right. it just does not work that way. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I think it's tough for some people. Because they have been they have been taught that the Bible is is almost equal to God. I mean, the, oh, yeah. the two are, yeah. are basically equal, and so once you give in to anything, it's like that whole slippery slope sort of deal. And, and what's so hard to hear, I think, for people in that setting is the fact that the Christian faith is actually very broad. Yeah, and despite what 
they were probably told either implicitly or explicitly that what they believe is what the church has always believed. Um, a little reading will cure you of that very, very quickly. The yeah. diversity of theology. I mean, there are things that Christians more or less have always believed, but I'm just still, you know, generally speaking, there is there is a lot of creativity in the history of the church. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's just not that simple. And to think that a movement that is essentially a white middle upper class movement in its origins, Western, yeah, basically American. Yeah, there are evangelicals yeah. in England. They're different than American evangelicals. Yeah. They have a lot. They're not. They're not obsessed about inerrancy, for example. Right. Just, it's a different climate. But to think that to equate what a, a small group of people thinks with the ultimate truth of this complex scripture of this complex and rich tradition to say we're the eschatological endpoint for what all of this means and if you look carefully enough the entire church has always believed what we believe that's um that's its own refutation a yeah. claim like that it's not even worth debating right uh, you know i mean sometimes you have to but it's really not yeah what what is what does church look like for you? Do you have like a traditional Sunday sort of go to church or what what what's Pete Inns do? Well, like I, I think I've struggled with church my whole life. Yeah. The act of going to church. And I think part of it is um and I've really thought about this over the years, is being really an introvert and not being charged up around people. I right. mean, I do like, I love teaching. I love going out and speaking and stuff, right. but that's different than a church context. Yeah. And, um, so, you know, you know, COVID was like, I can't go to church for a few months. And I was pretty happy about that. Right. Even though I really liked the church, St. Matthew's Episcopal church. I love the place, you know, great people. Yeah. But it, for me, it's like, it's, it's not, it's not what I have to do on a Sunday in order to be right. And if I force myself to do it when I don't want to do it, it's not going to make it better or easier. It's simply living inauthentically. Yeah. And, and I think living authentically is very important too. And I think church performs a very, very important function in creating community, which is I've known people who have left Christian faith and missed the community with tears right. because it's something that was support. At least a good church will do that. But right. Um, I, I think, um, John Caputo, the philosopher says, uh, he has his book, what would Jesus deconstruct? And he said, um, God's plan a with Jesus was not the church. That's plan B plan. A is the kingdom of God. Mm. The church is there to implement and to bring about and to foster and support this growing kingdom. And, you know, the structures have gotten in the way sometimes, yeah. you know, so I get a little cynical too, which is not healthy, but right. I do get a little bit cynical about just the idea. No, of not Pete Ann's, not know, cynicism. I, I actually don't like to be cynical <laughs> as much as I come across, but there's so many things. Um, By the way, but, I loved know, I loved in your episode with Sarah Bessie where she kind of took a jab at the message Bible and kind of thought you would just jump yeah. right in. <laughs> Uh, sorry to 
Sorry to hurt your feelings here, Sarah. But yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Explain why, just for my listeners, why why you didn't jump right on making fun of the Message yeah. Bible. Well, the Message, as, as your listeners probably know, is a highly paraphrastic right. rendition, and scholars tend to hate it because it's not faithful to the original. And my opinion is more like, I, I think translations of, of all kinds are generally fine because different things come out. But Sarah was making fun of it. And I said, you know, I was actually, for Eugene <laughs> Peterson, I was an exegetical consultant for the books of Ed- Exodus and Numbers. I read those, <laughs> I read his translations and I, I said, yeah, this is fine. You know, it's just, you know, it's no, no translation's perfect, yeah. right? And he knows that he's not trying to make a perfect translation. He's trying to get the sense across. So, so I like the message. I yeah. have, you know, I, I wouldn't use it for everything, but right. I, there's no Bible that is actually good for everything. Right. You know, right. some are better for reading, some are better for reading out loud, some are better for preaching from, all that kind of stuff. So, yep. Yep. Well, yeah. cool. Pete, I know you don't have all the time in the world, so let's go into Exodus a little bit. I think okay. for, for a little bit of a framework, I've heard someone who I respect his intellect, and so I just kind of was like, huh, that makes sense. I'll buy into that. And he says that Abraham is kind of the starting point, or Abraham's the first person that he feels can be traced back to history. Anything before Abraham, it's fair game, whether it happened or not, whether it's allegorical. Mm-hmm. And I think I heard you say that Abraham is up for question also. Well, yeah. I mean, here's here's the thing about history, and it's it's tough, but if it's always nice to be able to have some sort of corroboration outside of the Bible. Is it necessary? No, it's not necessary, but it's nice. And you really don't have much to go on until the middle of the ninth century. Well, what's happening there? Well, this is after the time of David. It's the monarchy has split into two, north and south. And this is when you start seeing you know, names of kings of other nations talking about Israel, right? That doesn't mean there was nothing historical before, but when you go backwards in time to like the time of Solomon and David, you know, Solomon has this apparently kingdom that's the envy of the world. And we don't know anything about it outside of the biblical record. So that's at least worth thinking about. Um, Then you have David, not really, um, you have an inscription that mentions David that's dated to about 825, written by um, the Arameans who are sort of next door, and they mention the house of David, right, which means David's dynasty. Well, that's interesting. Okay, that's great. So David lived, whatever. But go back, like Saul, not really. And then the period of, the further back you go, Judges, right, and then Joshua, that's when like the archaeological evidence that we have is really not very supportive of these kinds of stories, like the conquest of Canaan that Joshua talks about. And then going back to Exodus, you know, there's, we don't have any like concrete evidence that this happened. It would be nice to have some sort of a mention in an Egyptian record or something archaeologically to point to, but the whole story seems not very historical. And then you just sort of go further back in time. The point is that, you know, much of the Bible was written, at least in the form that we know it, you know, well into the monarchic period. Yeah. And so some of these stories from back long ago might have more of a legendary kind of feel with 
with an infusion of historical things going in and out of it. But, you know, it's, it's, you know, I wish things were different, but there's, there's no reason to suggest that Abraham was a person other than the fact that he's referenced as a character in the Bible. You can make a very good case and many people have, and I actually agree with this, that, um, all of those narratives in Genesis are really largely, they're talking about the monarchy, actually. Yeah. It gets a little complicated, but it's its almost like a preview of what's going to happen during that main period when they're in the land. And um, they, they seem to be representing something, you know, like, you know, even his grandson is named Israel, for heaven's sake. You know, it's like, and and, and Esau seems to be representing Edom, you know, and, and uh you know, Lot's daughters have, you know, with him, they have two children. One is named Moab and one is named Ammon, which are two of Israel's neighbors. And like, you're getting almost like a geography of the land reading the book of Genesis. <laughs> and it's it's actually intriguing to read Genesis that way. Right. But um, yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I would need uh, a reason to say that this is the first time you can look at someone and say this is a historical person, right? Other than the fact that he's a character in the Bible, right? Right? Because Adam's a character in the Bible, and I, I mean, you know, so why isn't he also a person, right? What this person might think that he is a, as a person, but right. he's saying it's Abraham. That's you know, that's when it really starts. But you have Abraham, you have Adam, you have Noah. Mm-hmm. You know, why isn't that? And there are good reasons to say, well, again, these are stories and they're not meant to be historical. And and if that's the case, then when you see Jesus talk about Adam and Moses and even Paul, the the first Adam and, you know, Mm -hmm. brought death to all of us and Jesus brings life to all of us, you would assume that they know. These are stories that represent something, and and I'll and I'll I'll load that up also with. So when you look at Exodus, what is the point of the story? Is it entertainment, or hey, there is something really important that you need to pick up on this? Like, what was the intention of 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 writing about right. these fictional characters? Let's just assume it's all fiction. What was the point of it? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Jesus refers to Adam, and and Paul does too, but you know, I. Again, it's it's the, the kind of I would sort of set this up differently depending on who I'm talking to. But we have to remember that both Paul and Jesus were first century Jews, and we have to take that seriously. And while well, they were inspired, and Jesus was God, Jesus was a first century Jew. How whatever, however we work the incarnation into that, omniscience is not one of those characteristics of Jesus. And Paul was a human being and inspired, yeah, but he was inspired as a first century Jew, right? So I expect them to talk about things within the framework that they had at the time. And, you know, for a Jew, that's like a foundational story, the Adam story. And and plus, see, even, even if, I mean, Paul might have, thought, I don't know, Paul might have not really thought that Adam was the first person. But he can still appeal to the Adam story to make his theological point that there is the first Adam and now there is the second Adam, Jesus, that corrects all the stuff. I don't. You don't have to have a historical Adam for that kind of an argument to work, right? So I think it's it's really a matter of just un, trying to just connect with the type of literature we're reading in the Bible, whether it's historical or not, which is which is a hard thing to ferret out. It's not obvious. But also just recognizing that even Jesus was a human being, 
And that's a very orthodox point of Christianity. He was fully human, which means he's limited as a human being. Did Jesus know French? I'm going to go with no. Right. right. Did Jesus understand quantum physics? I'm going to say no, he didn't. Did Jesus know how a lawnmower works? Would he know what to do with it? I'm going to say no. And that's not a <laughs> that's not a low view of Jesus. Right. That's recognizing that, you know, in the incarnation, you know, that paradoxical, mystical Christian teaching, um, it's not that God became man or human in general. He became a particular human or em- embedded a particular human, whatever we want to say, in a first century Jewish context, yep. right? And to be fully human means you're fully human there, not in the abstract, right? And I think, it, I mean, in other words, when I say that Jesus thought about human origins, Adam, the way Jews probably would have generally thought of it at the time, and thus limiting Jesus in that way, to me, that's a high view of Christ. That's a very important thing to affirm, to have a Jesus who's not just floating up in the air someplace. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, that's so interesting. All right, so how about this? I'm going to just throw this in there. How do you see, we just, we as Christians, we just call it the fall. Like, do okay. you see, <laughs> you know, how many people have asked you this? <laughs> yeah. Like, what okay. was, was there a point in history where death was introduced that wasn't supposed to be introduced and animals started killing animals and people stopped living forever. The Garden of Eden, whatever it represented or whether it was real people, they were supposed to live forever. Well, see, in my opinion, the Adam and Eve story um, is really about Israel more than just individuals. I think Adam represents Israel and the Adam story is a snapshot of Israel's entire history in the Old Testament. Namely, Adam was created out of dust, put into paradise, where God breathed life into him, right? Put into paradise, and if you obey the rule, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you obey, you live. If you disobey, you die. On the day you eat of it, you shall die. What, what happens on the day he eats of it, he's expelled from the garden. He's exiled from the beautiful land. That's it. I mean, this is, I'm not making this up. This is medieval Judaism, right? This is, the, the parallel is really quite striking. Israel was created by God out of the dust of slavery, so to speak, put into a paradise land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And if you obey, you stay. If you disobey, you're exiled. They disobey, disobey and they're exiled. And exile is spoken of in the Bible as the place of death. To be outside of God's presence is the place of death. So, again, I read that story differently. It's a different starting point for me. And so the fall is exiled from the garden. That's the fall, right? To be exiled from God's presence. But it's really describing something that will describe Israel's journey later on. Right. Now, the question of fall, just, you know, very briefly here, um, when people who have been around the block Christianly for a while, when they hear the word fall, that means um, because Adam sinned, you are born in a state of sinfulness and God's wrath is directed towards you from the time of conception. And you need to get out of that. So the fall is you're not you're, you're conceived sinfully in sin. And you are also participating in the guilt of Adam. You're equally guilty with him. 
And the thing is that the garden story doesn't say anything of the kind. There's nothing like that. It's, you know, the punishment to Adam is um, you will be alienated from the ground, from growing things. It'll be hard for you, which is a beautiful thing because Adam means man or human. Ground, the Hebrew word for ground is Adama. It adds an ah at the end. So it's a, it's a pun. It's a wordplay. Adam will be alienated from Adama. It's like the thing that you were taken from, yeah. the thing that constitutes you, you're alienated from that. And then mortality, you know, then, you know, the expulsion from the garden. There's nothing in there that says, oh, and by the way, from now on, every human being born after you is going to be born in a state of helpless sinfulness where you can't do anything about it. And you're just helpless and you have to wait for a savior to come. And God looks at you as a guilty person who needs to be condemned. The entire Old Testament contradicts that notion very quickly because it's assumed that people can do the right thing. And if you don't, there's a system of atonement in the Old Testament where you can be forgiven and cleansed and purified or whatever. But, you know, it's there's nothing in the Old Testament that says, I am, I am dead to sin, as Paul says. There's nothing like that, right? So I think the whole idea of that traditional view of the fall is is one that not every Christian accepts. I mean, historically, I mean, the Eastern Orthodox Church doesn't really think that way about the fall. There is something hap- There is a fall happening, but it's Israel's fall, and maybe it has ramifications for others. But it's it's not nearly as um, it's it's just it doesn't seem to be what people have made of it, you know. And and to really like everything depends on Adam being historical and. I'm born in sin because of Adam, right? That's a hard thing to come to. The closest you get to it is Paul in Romans chapter 5, but we don't have time to get into all that because there's all sorts of things happening in chapter 5 that might mediate against that kind right. of view. So you, uh, we got to reel all this in. You mean you don't believe in tulip? <laughs> just, well, you don't even have yeah. to acknowledge that. Hey, let me ask you this, though. What about, what was Paul? It, what did Paul think that he was talking about, or what was he talking about when he talked about mortality, mortality being swallowed up by immortality, and the sting of death is gone? And and I, yeah, I think what Paul, see, I think I said before that I think the beginning of Paul's whole theology is the resurrection. Okay. That's that is the thing. What, what convinced him, contrary to what he had been thinking for a long time, probably what convinced him that Jesus was the Christ, was the Lord. It was the vision of the resurrected Christ, even if it wasn't a bodily thing that he saw, but it was a vision. So I think I think Paul's whole theology, and again, I'm not alone in this, but Paul's entire theology is reasoning backwards from if this is how God shows up in raising from the dead his Christ, his Messiah, that's the solution. What's the problem? Mm-hmm. Well, if the solution is resurrection, the problem is death. That's the problem. That's the universal problem, and I think that's Paul's reasoning process. That you know, Jesus's resurrection liberates us from being nothing when you die, right? Yeah. I, th- I think that's really what Paul's after, and and then he has to go backwards and talk about Jesus's death right? 
Jesus's crucifixion, how do we explain that? And Paul frames that in very much like Levitical Old Testament language of a, a sacrifice for atonement, you know, and elsewhere a ransom for sin, which is how Jews before the time of Paul talked about the martyrs and the precious blood of the martyrs right. who died innocently. They didn't do anything wrong, but yet they died. And their blood is so precious that atones for the nation's sins. I'm not making that up as in 4th Maccabees chapter 17. This is this is there, right? So I'm I'm seeing uh, that death is the thing ultimately that is the enemy for Paul because of how God showed up, right, in this resurrected Christ. Yeah. Always fun, Pete. Hey, I'm gonna add here's the the most uncomfortable question of the whole thing. This has happened like two or three times when you and I first started podcasting. Dude, I could not just today, I could not keep a thought straight. And there was a couple of times, I don't know if you've ever done this in your podcasting, but you're like talking, and as you're talking, you lost your train of thought. Oh, yeah. And you're trying to like real. That. So, my question is to I, you I is, did you I notice could. it? Did you notice yeah. it at the beginning? I could not keep a thought straight. Were you like, what the hell is going on with Joey? Or did I play it off? Um, no, not not really. What I <laughs> what I sort of no what I what I sort of more sensed was you had so much that you wanted to talk about <laughs> that the synapses were firing in different directions. Oh right? man, that's, that's what I saw. Yeah, so, I, gosh, yeah. I had so much stuff going on today, and I was like, I got it. I'm going to talk to Pete, so I'm going to go outside, take some deep breaths, kind of break away from all my stuff. But yeah, my head was too yeah. good. Well, I'm glad I kind of pulled it off somewhat. <laughs> oh, you pulled it off just fine. I mean, you know, I think that's all part of being human. And again, I think people who listen to podcasts, they can pick up real fast when people aren't being themselves yeah. and being authentic. Yeah. I think that's what people want. And, Absolutely. and you know, that they have every right to want that, I think. Yeah. You know, so just go for yourself. Thanks for your work, man. It's a, it's a big blessing for me personally. My Joey. I appreciate it. Oh, can you? Can I let my cat in? Please, please. I've got my okay. dog right here. So. Okay, because my cat's going crazy. My marmalade. And she likes she likes being on TV too. So she'll jump up in a minute. She'll jump up in a second and put her butt in my face. So, there you but that's go. All there you so, go. So, yeah. well, at least it won't be yeah. in my face. Before it happens.